Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Nashville Life. For those of you who are here uh, for the first time, it's an honor for you to spend uh, your afternoon with us. I'm Alvin, lead pastor here at the church, and we are in our, what, third week of March, which is, do y'all feel how fast the year's going already? I don't know. I know it's early, but man, what is going on? Um, But it's great. It's great. It means we're having fun. Time flies when you're having fun, right? Uh, let's, let's start with our uh, pre-word declaration before we get into the message. Uh, let's say this together. Uh, the word of God is the bread of life. May my heart conceive it and my life achieve it. The more I give life, the more I'll receive. The more I live life, the more I'll believe. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right. Awesome. So third part of our series for the month of March, our series is called Designated Drivers. Designated Drivers. And we learned that when you're assigned to be the designated driver in a group of people who are going out to, to party, you've got one job, and that is to stay sober. Stay sober so that people can get home safely. And there are a lot of parallels between believers in our world today and designated drivers. We are the ones who are called to be, above all else, sober so that people can get home safely. That is the job for us as believers. And home, of course, is with the Father. Home is heaven. And people are confused. They're under the influence of all types of things. And without believers, how will they know how to get home? And if we're drunk too, and if we're under the influence of fear and anxiety and, and anger too, then how is anybody going to be sober enough to drive and to, to lead people home? And the church is called to be that. Um, I find nothing more sobering than the topic of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. I believe that nothing, in my opinion, sobers me up more than thinking about the cross and thinking about all that happened. And we're going to spend some time to dive in to further, I should say, into this topic of the crucifixion. Last week, well, two weeks ago, we said that the crucifixion reveals the uh, severe, well, it reveals the, that was last week, it reveals the sin capabilities, the evil capabilities of mankind. Um, and then the following week, uh, we said that the crucifixion reveals the righteous capabilities of mankind. But this week, uh, they got on the screen up, it says that we are going to discover how the crucifixion reveals the severity of sin. The severity of sin. That is what the crucifixion reveals, and we're going to talk about that this week. Um, have you ever heard a parent? Say, or maybe you're a parent that has said this, and that is you want your children to learn the value of a dollar. Have you ever used the term, money doesn't grow on trees? That often happens when you have children, me included, that don't know the work that goes into the food that they have and the bed they have and the clothes they have. Um... This is what I'll call the challenge of privilege because there are a lot of advantages that come with privilege. Otherwise, we wouldn't call it privilege. Privilege is a good thing. However, sometimes the challenge is you become detached or aloof to the value um, or the cost that, that it takes to, have, to afford you the things that you have. Um, and for kids, most of us don't really realize the value of a dollar until we start working. And then we realize, man, all that time just produced 30 bucks, and I can't even pay for X, Y, and Z with 30 bucks. And man, then you start realizing, oh my gosh, that means my parents, or whoever is working all of this time and putting all this effort so I can just have cereal and just so I can have clothes and so I can have a bed. And it's through working that you realize the value of a dollar. Now, I want to talk about the value of salvation, but the thing about it is, is we can't work for our salvation. Salvation is a gift. 
It's impossible to work for your salvation because it's no longer, if you work for it, it's no longer a gift, it's compensation. So, so salvation is a gift and it should remain a gift. It, it is a gift. There's, nothing, there's no way we can make it something other, other, otherwise we're teaching something that's not biblical. It's a gift. However, it's very important that we learn the value of it, the value of this gift. Um, one time, you know, I was, uh, well, we had some really generous people that, that gifted my parents a, a very expensive car. And uh, it was a total gift. They didn't pay for it all, but we still sensed the weight of how much it cost. You know what I'm saying? So, like, even though we didn't pay for it, we understood that this was something that was very expensive. Uh, there's a fragility. There's a sensitivity that you have when, you, when you're carrying something that even if you didn't pay for it, you know that it cost a whole lot of, of money. And I think that's what we're called to do with our salvation even though we didn't pay for it, it's important for us to never remember, never forget how expensive it is. We have to, to, to remember that it was a high price. You know, salvation was free for us, but it was not free for the one that paid for it. <laughs> and that's, that's what we have to remember. We cannot forget that even though it, it didn't cost us anything, it cost someone everything. And my prayer and my objective today is that we're sobered up by the, by the revelation and the reminder of just how expensive, just how costly this gift is. The reason why the price of salvation was so high is because the price of sin was so high. Whenever you see like clothes that that costs a lot or cars that cost a lot, the materials of it is what costs a lot, which is why the price had to be so high. Salvation was payment for sin, and sin had a very, very high price. Um, in fact, it's the highest price ever. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. That's the price of sin. Not 50 bucks, not $1,000, not $3 trillion, death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it's shown us here. It's a free gift, but it costs death. Our life costs God the wage of our sin, and that is death. Sin had to be paid for first before we could experience any of the salvation. And it had to be paid for in full. There was no layaway plan for salvation. There was no gradual installment plan for salvation. The whole thing had to be paid for in full before we got an ounce of it. Isaiah 53, verse 6, says, All we like sheep, all of us, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, the iniquity of us all. So this takes it even further because the wage of sin is death. The wage of one sin is death. So if one sin equals death, Imagine all of the sins in this room, <laughs> all of the sins in this city, all the sins of our generation, all the sins of any human being that ever walked the earth. If one sin costs death, then imagine the price for all of our sins. I mean, there's an infinite amount of sin for each individual in here. <laughs> And then you multiply that by how many people are in there. I mean, it's just, it's unfathomable of how much it cost for us all to be saved. I believe that Jesus, when he was on the cross, if every sin was laid upon him, then I believe he died what was worth multiple deaths, 
multiple deaths were all died via one man. When Jesus died, he wasn't just dying for one person. He was paying for, I mean, y'all realize how much sin? They says every sin was laid upon him. If it was every sin of Alvin laid upon him, he'd be covered head to toe. Let alone me and Brandon and Chris and Megan and Erica and Jacob. I mean, multiple, multiple lives full of sin all laid upon Jesus. Guys, the stench of our sin was so thick so potent on Jesus. Scripture says that he actually became the curse. He, he was so consumed by our sin that he actually took on the form of sin. Like he actually became it. It wasn't just like he wore it. Like he, Scripture says that he became him. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be so, 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 sorry, him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteous of God. Guys, it says that for our sake, he made him to not just pay for sin, to become it. He actually personified, he actually took on what sin is when he was on that cross. Someone who knew no sin, someone who never made a mistake, actually became all of the mistakes that ever were made. This is why we can't take our salvation for granted. This is why we can never underestimate just how expensive, just how costly of a gift that we've received. He became sin, and it manifested so powerfully that it cost him something that was unimaginable. More than physical pain, more than shame, more than blood. We're going to talk about it. Matthew 27. Matthew 27, verse 45 through 50. It says, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is, is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And I show this passage because earlier, if you guys recall, when he was being arrested, um, before his crucifixion, he told his disciples, hey, basically relax because if I wanted to, I could just appeal to my father and he would call 12 legions of angels to come rescue me like that. And this was a confidence that Jesus had all throughout his life. This wasn't the first time that he faced death. There were times where people tried to kill him, they tried to seize him, and he was able to get away because he knew that I'm not going to die until the appointed time, and I could call God right now, and he could, we could abort this whole mission if I wanted to. So I'm letting you know that prior to the cross, Jesus went through his entire life knowing that if I simply said the word, people, uh, angels will come and they will rescue me right now. So I'm letting you guys know this is someone that despite his suffering, he always knew that he had his dad. He always knew that my dad, if I tell him to, and if I ask him to, he will rescue me from all of this. But something happened that I don't even think he anticipated. When he actually became the curse, when he actually became sin, when he actually 
took on all of the mistakes, all of the vile. I mean, I don't even have to go down the list, but just imagine the sin that's happening in the world. The things that are happening behind closed doors, the things that are happening to children, the things that are happening to women, the things that are happening. All of those mistakes were caked on Jesus. And it became so severe that it cost him something unimaginable. Dad? Dad, stop playing. Dad. Dad. Dad? For the first time, the father that he just knew, if I just call him, he's here for me, he'll rescue me, was nowhere. Why? Why have you forsaken me? You, you left me? What, what's happening? This was a real moment for Jesus. A real moment of abandonment. A real moment of rejection. This was more than just some cosmetic ceremony. Surface situation. Okay, I died. Y'all, like he... He actually felt, he actually felt the emotion and the wrath that God had towards sin. The hatred that God has towards sin. The disgust that God has towards sin. Jesus, in this moment, felt that. It's been argued that he was just kind of quoting the scriptures quoting David for ceremonial purposes, but I don't agree with that. I believe in this moment he experienced every bit of rejection and abandonment from his father, something that he had never experienced. And Jesus has been around since the beginning. Christ was around from the beginning. Him and his dad were always like this, even while carrying the cross. Even, even while he was hanging there, but there was a moment where the sky grew dark and Jesus felt the isolation that he has never felt before. And he cried out in a loud voice and that was the moment that killed him. It was rejection that killed him. Many of us can relate. We could experience a lot of pain, but nothing seems to kill us like rejection. You could shoot me, you could stab me, but rejection, the human heart is not built for that. History says that he actually died sooner than a crucifixion actually is supposed to take. I believe it was when he was rejected from his dad, that it's it. Well, then what else is there to live for? He gave up his spirit. Taking the blame for our sin cost Jesus his relationship with his own father. And though it was only for a moment, it was the worst moment that anyone could ever experience. On our worst day, we know that we can call God and he will come and forgive us. All of us go to sleep with that knowledge, even, for the, even those of us who are in sin right now. We know that if we call on God, he is faithful to run and, and meet our needs. We all know that on our worst day, on our most sinful day, we know that we have a God that will say, hey, I'm here. Jesus, for a moment, experienced none of that. This is worse than losing your house. This is worse than losing your phone. It's worse than losing your money. Worse than losing a child. This is worse than losing a spouse. This is worse than anything. Anything is losing the ability and the access to have God come to your rescue.
God didn't rescue Jesus. He left him there. He left him there. And it was for your sake that he did it. It's for your sake that one day you might have the opportunity, one day you would have the opportunity to respond and say, I want, I want to know God. I want to find freedom. I want to discover purpose. I want to make a difference. He did this not even knowing for a fact that Alvin would say yes. He said, scripture says he did it that we might. Like, there's not even a guarantee that Alvin is going to receive this, but just so that he has a chance. I'm going to do this. Paul said, I do all this that some might come. Guys, we have to give our lives to the Lord and to the kingdom just so that some might come. I prepare for this message in case y'all decided to come hear it. For all I knew, all y'all could have been like, we're not coming today. And it happens. But we prepare so that some... There's a chance that someone's going to come and hear this. Jesus went through that pain saying there is a chance that Jessica's going to hear this and say, I want to be a part of this. I want to receive this. There is a chance. We all have free will. He can't make the decision for us. But he did it just so that we would have an opportunity to come. That's how generous God is. He did. He sacrificed. Imagine making this sacrifice without guarantees. Some of us don't even want to like. Take a job without a guarantee. Some of us don't even want to do small things without a guarantee. Jesus had no guarantee that any of us would receive his sacrifice. But he did it so that we could at least have the opportunity so we decide to stop our busy schedules and follow Jesus. Now, how does this apply to us today? How does this apply to us today? Hear me. Just because the price of your sin has been paid for, the legal price of your sin has been paid for, it happened thousands of years ago. The price, the legal price of your sin has been paid for in full. That's the good news. But just because the price has been paid for, it doesn't mean that the effects of your sin are no longer active. The death of Jesus paid for the cost of your sin, but the death of Jesus did not pay for the effects of your sin. Sin still kills. It still kills Sin is still what, sin didn't change. Sin didn't change post the cross. The price of it was paid for, but sin is still just as deadly as it was before Jesus died on the cross. The effects of sin are the same. Now, the price of it has been paid for, but the effects were not Diminished. The same sins in my life produced the same things in 2021 that it did back before Jesus died on the cross. It still kills. It still rots your life. It still ruins your relationships. It still costs you your life, which is where an extremely important detail that seems to be overlooked. Only, only explanation I can think of is just Satan himself that could allow this detail to be overlooked. And that is repentance. The crucifixion, the price that Jesus paid for our sins without repentance is what you would call a wasted investment. Jonah called it, in the book of Jonah, forfeiting the grace. There's a, there's a price that was paid for you, 
But until you repent, the, the effects of that payment never get to really happen in your life. It's like having a brand new car and still taking the bus everywhere. That brand new car is being put to no use. It's like having a full scholarship to college, everything paid for, and you not going to a single class. It's like having the cure to a deadly disease, obtaining it and still dying from that disease because you never took it. That's what the crucifixion is without repentance. The crucifixion was the payment for your salvation, but repentance actually ends up becoming the receiving of it. Jesus did his part. That, the cross was his part. But if the cross saved everybody, then there would be no hell. Everybody would be saved this very second. There's something that we had to do to respond to that. Now, for those of you who argue the validity and the significance and the necessity of repentance, I'm letting you know that I do understand that the Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. I know it says that, and I believe in that. But show me a person this is not a rhetorical question. I'm open. Show me a person who believes in their heart, believes in their heart that Jesus did what he did and rose from the grave and is not a repentant person. Show me somebody who believes in their heart, not in their head, in their heart. I already know there's thousands of people who know it in their head who are not repentant, but show me the person at the core of their being knows that he is risen and knows that the chains have been broken and has not repented. I think that much of the human heart, I think that much of the crucifixion, I don't think that a human heart can receive the revelation of the cross and not repent. I don't believe that it's possible. If someone can be, well, I believe that anyone who hasn't repented, this is what I believe, and I believe this from my own life too. If you find an unrepentant person and we're able to get a view into their heart, you will find unbelief. You will find unbelief somewhere. The person who has not repented, if you look at their heart and actually kind of get underneath everything, you will find unbelief. I don't believe it's just that we just love sin and we just, just want to do bad things. I sincerely believe at the core of the matter there is unbelief. Some either unbelief that it happened or unbelief that it applies to you. Because there's a lot of people who believe historically that it happened but still don't believe that it was really for them. I'm telling you, look at the heart of an unrepentant person and there will be unbelief somewhere. I just don't believe that you get that revelation, you get that conviction, and it doesn't result, result in repentance. Now, there's only one exception to this being the case. If someone can be convicted, truly convicted in their heart, and not repent, no response, this would indicate something even more severe than sin. And sin is very severe. This would indicate that there is an aversion a, a to the Holy Spirit. There's an aversion to the Holy Spirit, an opposition. And I believe there's only one thing that's worse than sin itself. And that is an aversion. There's an opposition. There is a hostility. 
towards the Holy Spirit. Mark chapter 3, verse 28 through 30. Jesus says, Jesus says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. Everyone say all sins. All sins. That one, yes, that one too. That one, that one too. And whatever blasphemies they utter, which means you can say all the blasphemous things you can think of and God will still forgive you. But, everyone says, everyone say but. There's a but. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, this is a very controversial verse. I've had to minister to many people who've lost lots of hours of sleep because of this scripture. Legit lost hours of sleep because they had discounted themselves and disqualified themselves from salvation. Because there's that one time where I said this or did that. But let me encourage you. Based on the word of God, the, the total word of God, based on men like Paul and people who were zealots against God and seeing how they were forgiven and regenerated, factoring the very nature of sin itself, the very nature of our salvation, this is what I believe about that scripture. I'm going to brag about the Holy Spirit for a little bit just so you can understand what Jesus means by that passage. The Holy Spirit is how any of us get saved. Jesus came and paid the price for our sin. He did his part of the whole operation save humanity. But then the Holy Spirit came to continue the work of the ministry. Jesus had a part that he did, sacrificial lamb, shed his blood, paid for sin, chains are broken. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. That's what we're celebrating in a couple of weeks. He rose, hallelujah. But the Holy Spirit continued the work of the ministry. It was like a, it was like a relay race. Jesus had the baton and said, all right, I'm done. Holy Spirit, you go. And the Holy Spirit said, thanks, Jesus. And he started doing this other part called continuing the work of the ministry. Jesus brings, I mean, the Holy Spirit brings conviction to the hearts of men so they can be sparked into an awakening, a sobriety, an awareness. And it's through this awareness, it's through this sobriety, it's through this revelation that they respond and receive Jesus. That's how it works. Jesus paid the price. The Holy Spirit goes and pricks hearts, snaps you, snaps you. <gasps> that's, what the whole, that's how it works. He's doing that literally this very second. All around the world, he's doing it in this room. He's doing it out in Canada. He's doing it in Egypt. He's doing it, every, he's going around sparking hearts back to an awareness and an awakening and a conviction that my sins nailed Jesus to the cross. He used Peter when Peter did it on the day of Pentecost. He goes, the man that just died, you guys just crucified. Whoa, we did? Oh my God, how can we be saved? That's how this works. And the Holy Spirit, that's his role in this. Jesus said that he would convict the Holy Spirit would convict the world of sin. The Holy Spirit would convict the world of righteousness. The Holy Spirit would convict the world of judgment. It's the conviction of the Holy Spirit that enables us to repent. None of us repented because we just decided to do it. A lot of us think that it was really our, the Holy Spirit came and said, whoa, and we respond. We, we, he snaps us out of the hypnosis. The Holy Spirit is the one that goes, he's the, you know, they say, pinch me if I'm dreaming. We were all asleep, and the Holy Spirit is the one that goes, oh, 
oh my God, I was asleep. All right. Wow. Please forgive me, God. And that's how he gets saved. The Holy Spirit, praise God. I will tell you all, he is the unsung hero of the three. He is the unsung hero. But here's the thing. He likes it that way. He likes it that way. Holy Spirit is, he wants Jesus to be glorified. He's doing a lot of the work, honestly, arguably, all of it since the resurrection. But he'd rather him not even really be, he's like, as long as you know about Jesus, I've done my job. I love the Holy Spirit. Talk about meekness. Oh, my God. Talk about character. He's never like, when is it my turn? I'm doing all this work. I'm breaking my back. The Holy Spirit's like, what else? Father, Jesus. Okay, cool. The Holy Spirit is to Jesus what Jesus was to the Father. Jesus is going, okay, Father, what do you want to do? Okay, I got you. Say that too. Okay, do that too. Got you. Holy Spirit's that for Jesus. Okay, Jesus. Him? Okay. And it's this amazing team. It's an amazing team. What an amazing team. The Godhead. God is just, he's perfect. All the functions are happening all within him. What a glorious God. And the Holy Spirit's not done. So we get saved. After we repent, it's the Holy Spirit that then, according to Scripture, he gives us the spirit of adoption. He's the one that actually makes us say, God, you're my father. All that father stuff, the Holy Spirit gave you that ability to see God as your dad. He gave you the spirit of adoption. So now the Holy Spirit enables me to go, oh, God, you're not just God. You're dad. You're Abba. Oh, okay. Who knew? Okay. Thank you, Holy Spirit. And then he's still not done. Then the Holy Spirit brings this thing called fire and sanctification. He sanctifies us. I mean, I'm telling y'all, the Holy Spirit is working over time. He pricks your heart to get you born again. He gives you the spirit that lets you know that you're a son or a daughter. And then he gives you fire that actually gives you sanctification. It gives you gifts. It gives you the ability to walk and talk like Jesus. All of the thing I'm just bringing up is, is the work of the Holy Spirit. And yet he's the one that is talked about the least. At the same time, I don't feel like he's complaining. Because the Holy Spirit has a way of doing it, even if you don't know who he is. Okay, every single person who gets saved is responding to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But 90% of them don't even know that the Holy Spirit's there. When I got saved, I wasn't going, oh, wow, the Holy, thanks, Holy Spirit. I was just responding to something that was happening. The Holy Spirit has a way of doing it and then just <laughs> running. Like, like it's, he's, he's, he, most of us are submitting to him in the beginning. We don't even know that we're submitting to the Holy Spirit. We just know that we're responding to Jesus when really the link was the Holy Spirit. He's such a wonderful person. So, go back to that scripture about Jesus. Anyone who sneers or rejects or devalues or opposes the Holy Spirit, how is there any hope for that person? If you reject the very person whose job is to prick your heart for you to get saved, then how can you get saved? If you have an, uh, an aversion and you can, and a hatred towards your very key to Jesus, you tell me how does someone get to Jesus. You tell me. I'm open. How? If the very Holy Spirit that ignites your heart for you to even see Jesus is someone who you say no, nope, nope, and actually knowing that you're doing it 
Jesus says that person never receives forgiveness. And it's not because he goes, I don't like you, you don't get forgiveness. It's you are rejecting the very thing that enables you to be forgiven. It's like, I don't know. It's like me give, it's like if I gave you my Jeep and, but you had this strange thing against the keys to my Jeep. Like you just like, I won't touch that. No, 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 no. Jesus basically goes, that person who rejects the keys to the Jeep will never drive the Jeep. It's not, it's fact. It's not, a, it's not oh, I hate that person. He rejected the keys. I'm going to forbid him from driving the Jeep. It's no, that person, it's physically impossible for that person to drive the Jeep. Because whenever I bring the keys, he goes, no, no, not the keys, not the keys. That's what that scripture means. It doesn't mean that he has, he puts you on his bad person list. You are blaspheming. You are rejecting the very key to your salvation. And he goes, any person who rejects the Holy Spirit, I don't want them to not be saved, but how, you tell me, how can you drive this Jeep without the keys to the Jeep? The Holy Spirit is the key to Jesus. So anyone who blasphemes, rejects, sneers, considers it below them, can't drive the Jeep. It's physically impossible. If you want salvation, the reason why I had literally a friend that said some bad things about the Holy Spirit and actually remembered it and was terrified. He was just like, I'm done. I said, who told you that? He was like, Matthew 28. I blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. I mean, I said... Do you want to know Jesus? Do you believe him? Yes. You've accepted the Holy Spirit. You don't even you couldn't even you couldn't even have a desire to be saved if you still were blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Your knowledge of Jesus and your desire for Jesus is proof that you have accepted the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the one that made you want to be saved. You're fine. He goes, oh, okay, end up winning his whole family to Jesus, baptizing all of his brothers and sisters to Jesus. But he was convinced because I, guys, it's a state of the mind, it's a state of the heart. It's a heart position. If you have a blasphemous heart towards the Holy Spirit, you are rejecting the very key to Jesus. Most people who receive Jesus don't even know that the Holy Spirit is even there. They'll find out later that that was the Holy Spirit, but in the moment, they don't know. They're just like, yes, Jesus. What, what it is, in case you want to know when the Holy Spirit, if the, 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 the proof that the Holy Spirit is at work is simply having an open heart. When your heart is open to the truth, the Holy Spirit's already done his job. He's already done step one. The new covenant is I will replace a heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. So if you are convicted, the Holy Spirit has already started. He already did step one. If you care, if you feel any sense of, ah, the Holy Spirit already did step one. If you feel broken when you hear about the sins that were committed that you did or, this, or the crucifixion of Jesus, if there's any sense of openness or humility or just some sort of response that wants to move forward, be encouraged. You do not blaspheme the Holy Spirit. 
you allowed him to do a work and didn't even realize it simply because your heart was open. So yes, the crucifixion lets us know the severity of our sin. The crucifixion lets us know how much Jesus paid for us. The crucifixion lets us know that the gift is available. The only step after that is reliant on your heart. Now that's one thing that's really on you, the condition of your heart. My question to you, I have two questions. Are you open in your heart? And are you humble in your heart? That's the question you have to ask yourself. Are you open? I mean, that's the bar. It's not even saying, are you ready to preach the gospel? Are you ready to start a church? I'm just saying, are you open? Are you open? There's so many, there's so many times when I'm pastoring, I'm talking to people, and I, some, at some point for some people, I have to ask the question, are you before we go any further, are you even open? <laughs> like, because if your mind is made up, let's just say both of our time. Are you open that this could work out? Are you open that there's a better way to the way you're living? Are you open that you might have missed a few steps? If your answer is no, then it's like, let's just go. <laughs> I'll see you later. Have a really good rest of your day, and I'll try to do the same. But if you're open, if there's an openness, oh, man, the Lord can do so much. I mean, y'all know, know firsthand how much God has done with just a little bit of openness. Just a little bit of openness towards God has made me a pastor. God can do a lot with that openness. Just a little, he said, just a mustard seed of faith. Just a little bit of openness that there could be something better for you than what you're experiencing right now. You have no idea the value of being just slightly open to the fact that God can do something that he hasn't done yet in your life. If you're not open, there's no entry point. You've got a rock heart. Nothing can penetrate. You can plant a seed and water it all day and nothing is happening from planting a seed on a rock. There's got to be some fallow ground somewhere. There's got to be an ounce of soil that is receptive somewhere. And my question is, is there a little bit of openness in your heart? Just a little bit. Are you, is, there, is there some degree of a part of your heart that's receptive to something new happening in your life? Or is your pride so strong that you consider the Holy Spirit below you? Is your heart so solid, so calloused that you Feel like you know better than what the Holy Spirit can do. And you would think this is a far-fetched question, guys. This is not a far-fetched question. I've been here in recent years, recent months even, where I've had to acknowledge that I'd come to a stronger resolve about things. Such a strong resolve that I had closed myself to the openness that, the, that God could do something miraculous through this. We jumped to conclusions, guys, so fast. We close our heart, seal our mind, and before anybody could change it, I'm making my decision. We do these impulsive moves because we, we closed ourselves to any openness that God could actually produce something beautiful from it. We do it all the time. We do it all the time. Like, all the time. I'm not exaggerating. I'm talking about this church. We do it all the time. We close our heart to the possibility that this could produce something wonderful. And we shut the door. 
and the Holy Spirit is basically just waiting for us to open it back up. He waits. Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus said, don't harden your hearts. He wouldn't say that if we didn't know how to do it. We know how to do it. We know how to harden our hearts to the possibility of something turning around. We know how to harden our hearts to hope. We know how to harden our hearts to the fact that God could be doing something good. Jesus says, don't do that. Don't let your pride harden your heart to the fact that I'm doing something new right in the midst of this. The Holy Spirit is not forceful, just so you know. He's not forceful. He's persistent, but he's not forceful. He fights for us, but he's not forceful. What he does is he beckons us. He draws us. He does little pokes (laughs) here and there. But the question is, are you willing to be drawn? Are you willing to be led? Are you willing to change? I want to end today with offering repentance. Repentance is is how we respond to the crucifixion. It's how we respond to the news that our sins have been paid for. It's the only response that produces fruit. It's repentance that actually enables belief. I taught a message on that. It changed my life. Derek Prince, one of my favorite preachers. He said, old guy, I love him, British man. I watch his, his sermons are so long, which is why probably why I'm long-winded. Um, but oh, he said, Jesus says, repent and believe. He said, that order was not on, on accident. He argues that you can't even believe until you repent. You can't even accurately believe until you repent. And just so you know, repentance is simply turning to Jesus. That's all it means. Turn from whatever you were looking at to Jesus. Turn your eyes from wherever it's on to Jesus. That's repentance. Turn your heart from wherever it's at to Jesus. That's repentance. Turn your money from wherever it's at to Jesus. That's repentance. Turn your hopes to wherever it's at to Jesus. That's repentance. Simply turn to Jesus. You can't turn to Jesus and still have it looking at something else. That's why it's cool. Like, it's like checkmate. Like, you can't, you can't look at Jesus and look at something else at the same time. So let me just debunk the, mystic, the, mystery, the mystery. Just turn to Jesus, and that's repentance. Now do you understand why you have to repent to get saved? For those, for you theologians, repentance is not, repentance is turning to Jesus. So you're telling me that someone can get saved without turning to Jesus? We're not even making sense. It doesn't even make sense. How can Jesus save you if your heart and mind and eyes are still somewhere else? Simply turn to Jesus, guys. When your eyes are on Jesus, like like the bronze serpent with uh, Moses and the Israelites, when their eyes were on the bronze, the, 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 the curse and the sickness broke. They were healed. When your eyes turn to Jesus, the devil's curse on your life will be broken. Simply turn to Jesus and the devil's curse on your life will be broken. Sin's curse on your life will be broken. It's not that simple, Alvin. Yes, that's just how amazing Jesus is. One look at him, and the curse is broken. If you fix your eyes and your heart on him, and if you want continued broken curses in your life, then just keep your eyes on Jesus. Now, if you think about Jesus is, if you turn away from him, don't be surprised when the curse returns. 
If you turn away from him, and we all see it happen, what happened? I'm back in stuff. Oh, I took my eyes off Jesus. And then we get back, and the curse just magically gets broken again. That's how it works, guys. You have to keep your eyes. That's why it says fix your eyes. He says set your mind, which means lock it in. Lock your mind on Jesus, and you will experience continual freedom from the devil's curse on your life. It's not easy, but it's simple. It's a simple thing. It's just sometimes hard to do it. I love you so much, guys, but I sense the Father's love for you even more. And it's not because of a feeling. I was talking to someone just earlier. Please don't make your decision on a a feeling. I'm just feeling this. I'm feeling. We do that all the time, guys. Based it on fact, I don't have to feel that God loves you because fact says that he gave up his most prized possession to save your life. I don't have to feel that he loves you. I know who, what else does he feel for you? What other emotion could he have for you that he's willing to sacrifice his only son? It's based on fact that I know he loves you. The evidence shows what else could he do, but you tell me what emotions someone could have for someone that they're sacrificing their most prized possession for. I don't have to feel that he loves you. Facts tell me he loves you. Use your brains, folks. Who in the world would sacrifice their most prized possession for someone they didn't care about? Doesn't even make sense. I know he loves you because the facts prove it. He's demonstrated his love. So next time you don't feel that God loves you, look at the facts. When your feelings fail you, go to the facts. When your feelings just you can't find them, that's what the facts are for. Let the truth of God's word be your support, not your feelings. Because the word will go places your feelings will never go. The Bible says the word is what divides the soul and the spirit. It says the word is what's the sharp sword that goes to the inside, to the most depth of who you are. Nothing in scripture says feelings do that. Nothing in scripture says that feelings can divide the soul and the spirit and and reveal the discerning of the heart. It says the only thing that does that is the word of God. Challenge. Challenge. You're you're going to need a partner. And I'm going to make, who do I talk to? I'll make Dewan my partner. Because I see him mostly throughout the week, the staff. Every time, I haven't even thought this through. Every time I say feelings, I want to replace it with the word. I believe that if we begin to consciously replace the amount of times that we say feelings throughout the week with the word, nothing, we will see that we have made an idol out of our feelings. Especially our church. Our favorite phrase is, I just feel like. If we replaced I feel like with the word, we will realize that we have nothing to say. Half of our, half of our words will be cut out. I just feel, the word says, actually, I, we're good. I don't have to say anything anymore. Now, guys, don't hear what I'm not saying, guys. I feel like I I hate doing this all the time. Just to save me a few emails. (laughs) The existence of feelings aren't the issue. The fact that it's replaced the the value of the word. It's idolatry. Idolatry is when anything gets in place of God. Kids are amazing. But if kids are your idol then they become, it becomes a tainted situation. Good things 
in the position of the word become bad things. So I'm talking about idolatry here. I'm not coming against feelings. I'm coming against idolatry. And we are in a generation and a Christian culture where feelings have become the idol. Feelings have become the idol. It's what drives us. It's what supports us. It's what informs us of the truth. When the word was supposed to do this the entire time. Feelings have become our Lord. Feelings have become our Lord. Jesus can say go left, but if our feelings say go right, where do you think we're going? The word can say don't say that. Our feelings can say say that, say that and guess what we're doing? We're saying it. We're doing it. And this is the church. I'm, talk, I'm not even talking about non-believers. Of course, of course non-believers follow. They, have no, they don't have the word in their hearts. Of course, the world is doing exactly what they're supposed to do. I'm not mad at the world. The anger comes from the ones who are saying that we are following the spirit. Because it ends up becoming confusing to the world and to me and to you. So exercise. Every time feeling comes out, go word, and then it'd be like, oh, man. And it's, I think it's going to be a fun exercise. So don't harden your heart. <laughs> this is so good. Thank you. Um, don't harden your hearts. Be open. And some of us need to repent of idolatry. So let's all stand. Please, let's stand. I'm sorry. Please. Please, and um, I'm going to pray a prayer of repentance. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray, Lord, just while it's on our mind, it wasn't the plan, but I just pray a repentance towards idolatry. Lord, um, I don't think many of us knew that feelings could be an idol, um, and I, think, I thank you for revealing that to us, Lord. Um, Lord, for any of us who have placed our feelings and our emotions um, to a competing or even more superior stance than the word, then we just repent. We repent, Lord. We're open that we have made an idol out of this uh, thing called emotions. And, Lord, though we know that emotions are from you, we also know that emotions were never meant to replace you. Lord, so may we never use the excuse that God gave us emotions as a deceptive way to still idolize emotions. Our feelings, our senses... Lord, let us, give our, let us trust you with this switch. Lord, let us trust you. A lot of us are going to be scared to demote emotions. Lord, give us courage to trust you and your word over our emotions. Lord, I rebuke any anxiety that we're going to turn into these cold, feelingless people. I come against the extreme version that the enemy continues to try to use to say that if you if you do let go of your emotions you're going to turn into something else i believe there's an image that the whole that the that the enemy uses in our lives whenever we entertain the idea of of letting go of our emotions and de demoting it i believe there's this alternative that the enemy always uses he uses that same alternative and in fear of that alternative and that extreme version, you, you decide to not do that anymore. You go, oh, you're right. I'll, I'll, hold, I'll keep it up. I'll keep it up. But I believe the Holy Spirit is saying, fear not. Lean not on your own understandings. Trust in him. Trust that his word knows how to handle everything, including and especially your emotions. Trust him. So, Father, hear our repentance. We repent, and we put your word back to the position that it was supposed to be, and that is the rock on which we stand, that is the light from which we see, that is the lamp by the way that we know how to walk, that's the sword, that's, I mean, that's the bread, 
It's our food. I mean, Lord, there's so much scripture that shows you want your, you want your word to be way more to us than it is. And Lord, whether it's our feelings or our money or our whatever, anything that we have been uh, competing with your word with, God, we just renounce it. We repent of it and we look forward to living our life based on your word. Some of us need to maybe read it more. Some of us need to graduate from reading it and do it. Um, but the word is such a blessing, God. It's your word that we know that you love us. It's your word that we know our sins are paid for. It's your word that we know how much Jesus endured on the cross. So I pray that we respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And if you are ready to receive Jesus, who is the living word, by the way, I mean, Lord, the word is even who Jesus is. So God, give us the courage to, to say yes to your word, the living word, Jesus Christ. So if you are ready to say yes to Jesus, repeat this prayer after me. Father, in the name of Jesus, I confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins and was raised from the dead on the third day. Forgive me of my sins and make me a new person in Christ. Lord Jesus, I choose you to be the Lord of my life. Fill me with the Holy Spirit so I can live for you every day. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Let's celebrate salvation. Let's celebrate the word of God. Let's celebrate...